if you have billions in shares, you can then use that as money to then get more money, but not get taxed on any money because you don't have money. <laughs> do, do, do you hear what I'm saying here? Well, I do. Let's see if America does. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN in Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all your favorite podcast sites except for Spotify, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Hey, here's a fun fact. (laughs) Okay. You ready? Yeah. Over the course of the pandemic, just over two years now, billionaire Jeff Bezos saw his personal wealth rise by $32 billion in those two plus two years plus two months, while most of the rest of us struggle to, you know, keep our jobs, stay in our homes, put food on the table, pay our bills. That said, Bezos, of course, owns Amazon, which was obviously critical to many people being able to survive the pandemic lockdowns and so forth. So it makes at least some sense that Bezos made a whole lot of money during the worst of the pandemic. But at the same time, Elon Musk, his personal wealth went from 25 billion in March of 2020 to more than 255 billion over that same two-year period, a $230 billion gain? How did that happen? And how did the wealth of just 727 billionaires in America increase more than $1.7 trillion during that same pandemic? And what can or should be done about any of it? We will discuss that with my guest from the Institute for Policy Studies Inequality.org shortly. But in related-ish news, well, you'll enjoy this one, Desi Doyen. Okay. Maybe. We'll see. Here's, <laughs> here's a bunch of iPhone alerts that I woke up to this morning from a bunch of different news outlets. See if you can spot the one that is rather different from all the others. You ready? Okay. 
New York Times, breaking news, inflation moderated slightly in April, though the 8.3 annual percentage gain in U.S. consumer prices remained uncomfortably rapid. AP said U.S. inflation slowed slightly last month, a tentative sign that prices may be peaking while still imposing a financial strain on American households. Reuters said U.S. consumer price growth slowed sharply to 0.3% in April, suggesting that inflation may have peaked but could stay hot for a while. NBC reported it this way. Inflation hit 8.3% in April compared to last year, showing signs of leveling off. So they're all kind of giving you the same idea here. Yeah, okay. CNN, U.S. inflation took a breather last month for the first time since August. Prices still increased, but at a slower pace than in previous month. All of this seemingly good news when it comes to inflation. Washington Post, inflation edged down to 8.3% in April compared to a year ago, remaining near 40-year highs. And then there's Fox News. Breaking. Inflation higher than expected in April, holding near 40-year high. (laughs) One of these things is not like the other. Yeah, right? So no wonder folks on the right watching Fox News, the nation's top cable channel, by the way, are are just so furious they can't wait to vote those Democrats out of office this November. <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, it was midterm primary election day on Tuesday in Nebraska and West Virginia, and I am very happy to report that so far anyway, I have heard of no votes or, or, or voting machine or electric uh, electronic poll book failures like the ones that we saw last week in several counties across Ohio that prevented voters from voting. Uh, that's some good news this week. Usual caveat here, of course, that sometimes it's days or weeks or even longer after elections before voting system failures actually come to light. But at least on Tuesday, at least as far as I have been able to find, Uh, Let me know if you find otherwise. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. As far as I've been able to find, there were no major problems keeping people from exercising their right to vote in both Democratic and Republican primaries in the two states on Wednesday. So there's some good news. As to the results of note, I'm beginning to see a pattern here as well. Following last week's primaries in Ohio and Indiana and this week, once again, a pattern from the corporate media in any event who seem to have figured out what they wish to cover in this primary cycle as Vox.com. That's Vox with a V, not Fox. Vox.com reports former President Donald Trump's sway over Republican voters was tested again this week as primaries took place in both Nebraska and West Virginia. Given the Republican lean of both states, the most competitive races were in the GOP primaries, particularly Nebraska's gubernatorial race and West Virginia House ra- and a West Virginia House race that pitted GOP incumbent versus GOP incumbent. Unlike in last week's primaries, they report Trump's endorsements had mixed results this time. After helping propel all uh, all 22 of the candidates that he endorsed in last week's primaries to victory, Trump faced another major test of his clout on Tuesday. Of all of the endorsements of all of his endorsements this week, two were seen as particularly telling. 
those of businessman Charles Herbster for Nebraska governor and of incumbent Congressman Alex Mooney in West Virginia. Let's start with that one. As AP reports, in an early victory for Donald Trump, a Trump-endorsed candidate at the start of midterm season, Rep. Alex Mooney, on Tuesday beat fellow Republican U.S. House incumbent David McKinley in West Virginia's 2nd Congressional District. Donald Trump loves West Virginia, and West Virginia loves Donald Trump, Mooney said in his victory speech. McKinley was sharply criticized by the former president when he broke with his party as one of 13 Republicans to vote with uh, the Democrats to support President Joe Biden's $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill. Trump called McKinley a rhino, a Republican in name only, and endorsed Mooney the day that Biden signed the infrastructure law. Because, of course, uh, not because it's not a good law, by the way, but because Donald Trump, after promising for years that he would pass an infrastructure bill while president, he failed to do it. Now, to be honest, he didn't try very hard, but he's also not actually very good at anything. So, you know, he's mad at all the people who actually did what he said he wanted to do. The two incumbents in West Virginia were pitted against each other in the state's 2nd Congressional District after population losses cost West Virginia a U.S. House seat. The race was one of the most watched of the day. Watched by whom? Oh, yes, watched by the corporate media. After a long article here about the Mooney-McKinley race, AP finally, and, and about Trump's influence on it, AP finally adds two sentences at the end. In the general election, Mooney will face openly gay former Morgantown City Councilor Barry Wendell, who bested security operations manager Angela Dwyer during Tuesday's Democratic primary. Mooney enters the general election as a heavy favorite to win. West Virginia hasn't elected a Democrat to the House, any Democrat, since 2008. So, little wonder that uh, corrupt West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin acts almost exactly like a Republican, even though he's nominally a Democrat in a state where their uh, Republican billionaire coal baron, by the way, their governor, Jim Justice, actually ran for governor as a Democrat, got elected and then flipped to the Republican Party almost immediately after winning his election. Yeah, it was like the next in, day. Yeah, back in 2016. Psych! Psych. <laughs> so that was a win for Trump in West Virginia on Tuesday, as the corporate media generally seemed to agree today, as they covered all of this through uh, a very Trumpy lens. How about Nebraska? Well, Trump didn't do as well there, apparently, which might be seen by some as better news. For that reason alone, though, I, I, I'm, I'm not altogether sure why. In this case, given this particular Trump-endorsed candidate who lost, yeah, it actually is better news, sort of. Charles Herbster, the Donald Trump-endorsed GOP candidate for governor of Nebraska, accused of sexually assaulting eight women, including a state senator from his own party, lost the Republican primary for Nebraska governor on Tuesday to University of Nebraska regent Jim Pillen. Herbster 
is a longtime donor and ally to the former president. He received a boost when the Trump in when Trump endorsed him late last year. Trump went on uh, went to the states to campaign for him as recently as May, just last week, and held a teller rally less than a week before the election. Trump, who himself faces accusations of rape, assault, and harassment from even more women, called Herbster a quote fine man. And said, quote, he is innocent of all of these despicable charges. <laughs> he would know. He said, I have to defend my friends. I have to defend people that are good, he told the crowd at the rally. These are malicious charges to derail him long enough that the election can go by before proper defense can be put forward. Trump's endorsement of Herbster did not please many Republicans in the state. Last year, outgoing Governor Pete Ricketts asked the former president to remain neutral. Ricketts later endorsed Pillen, saying Herbster would be, quote, a terrible governor. Eight women accused Herbster of groping them, including a state senator in his own party. State Senator Julie Slama told the Nebraska Examiner in 2019 she was at a GOP fundraising dinner when she walked by Herbster. According to the Examiner, quote, he reached up her skirt Ugh. without her consent and touched her inappropriately. Another woman who attended the same dinner and has worked as a legislative aide in Nebraska said Herbster also assaulted her at the same dinner. But Herbster took a page out of Trump's playbook, denied the allegation, attacked the women who made the accusation, even sued Slama for defamation. She has sued him back in return. But the accusations took their toll. Apparently, Herbster lost his momentum. All 13 women in the Nebraska State Senate, which includes both Democrats and Republicans, signed a letter saying that Herbster's alleged behavior was, quote, completely unacceptable and that he was unfit to serve. So that was good enough for Donald Trump to go out and stump for him. The good news, Herbster lost, though it was close, about four points reportedly between him and Pillen. But don't get too excited about that. The race was a uh, three-way contest largely between Herbster, a multimillionaire, of course, a so-called moderate Republican state senator, Brett Lindstrom, and Jim Pillen, the regent at the University of Nebraska, who was endorsed by the uh, current term-limited uh, governor, uh, Republican governor, Pete Ricketts. As noted, don't get too excited about the fact that Jim Pillen won here. In 2021, Pillen introduced a resolution to bar the teaching of critical race theory from the university system. Now, happily, the Board of Regents voted it down. But that's the guy who wasn't endorsed by Trump, who actually ended up winning. Now, <laughs> Trump uh, won the uh, state by 19 percentage points in the 2020 election in Nebraska, and there hasn't been a Democratic governor there in decades. Pillen will face Democratic State Senator Carol Blood in November. But, you know, for those folks out there who are like, yay, Trump's guy lost. Yay, the sexual uh, assaulter, alleged sexual assaulter guy lost. Yeah, but the guy who's trying to ban critical race theory from the Nebraska university system, he's the one who won. And all of all of the other coverage that I saw of, of these races and all of the others since uh, Tuesday is through the lens of whether this is a win for Donald Trump or not. 
It seems like the corporate media here have chosen their framing for these primaries. Not, you know, who is going to help save American democracy, not who is going to change the course of the Republican Party from autocracy, not even, you know, what are their positions on, you know, climate change, God forbid, or even the war in Ukraine, or even what do they plan to do about inflation? Or even do they believe that abortion should be unlawful in all circumstances, including rape and incest in the life of the mother? No, instead, it's all about what does this tell us about Donald Trump and his current hold over the GOP? But here's where this does a grave disservice to the electorate. Trump's hold over the GOP is a fait accompli. It's done. Whether Trump's candidates in 2022 or Trump himself in 2024 becomes the GOP candidate and goes on to win the White House, it's done. And that will, of course, be a huge story for the media, uh, but not because it's about accountability for this criminal who has almost single-handedly broken this country over the past six years, but because Trump news gets clicks on the intertubes. That's it. So, uh, you know, how, how does how does this happen to affect Trump? How do these elections affect Trump? That's what everything is being told through now. It's because they wonder if the party will continue its path towards Trumpist autocracy. No, it's because they just like to tell Trump stories. The damage is already done when it comes to the Trumpism in the Republican Party, no matter how Trump's candidates do, no matter how he does. It doesn't matter if his endorsed candidate loses when the guy who is banning critical race theory in college is actually the winner. It does not matter if Donald Trump chokes on a Kentucky Fried Chicken leg tomorrow and dies. Or if he's jailed for life and he's forced out of politics somehow. The damage is done. If Trump is gone, Trumpism does not go away. It is simply replaced by DeSantisism or Pompeoism. And it's all the same thing. But likely worse for the country because, frankly, they're better at Trumpism than Trump is. So, yeah, we're about to get a bunch of elections over the next few months that will all be told through the lens of what this tells us about Donald Trump and his hold on the party, because that's what's good for business. When the truth is, uh, none of it matters. His work is done here. He has broken his party. He has broken the country along with it. The question now is, what are the rest of us going to do to clean up this mess? And not that you will hear much about that from the media unless they're pressing Democrats with actual tough questions when they are running in critical races. That, of course, is just another way we are being deserved by our corporate media. Anyway, just a thought for you. Uh, you can watch it. It'll happen again next Tuesday, by the way. Primaries are, will be in Kentucky, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Idaho. Get busy, people who live there. Get voting. Speaking of uh, being deserved by the media, which spends little or no time letting Americans know how they are being ripped off by the billionaire elite, even when some Democrats at least are trying to do something about it, sort of. Omar Ocampo of Inequality.org joins us next to discuss how all of us other 
than the top 1% or the top one-tenth of 1% are all being screwed while we're otherwise distracted by which Trump-supported candidate may win the next primary. What a world, but we are not giving up yet. I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to The Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Yes, it's hilarious. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine rages on and continues to roil the global oil and gas markets today, day after day. That, as the U.S. and indeed the worldwide economy, continues to try and recover from the pandemic, even as post-pandemic and war-related inflation rages. Conveniently enough, in the months leading up to critical midterm elections here in the U.S. that will help set our national uh, our nation on a path still further toward authoritarianism or back towards what we will call for sake of discussion democracy in recent days however as the war and post pandemic supply chain issues continue to be cited as the central causes of inflation even as new job growth in the U.S. is breaking all-time records under Joe Biden with an unemployment at five-decade lows and GDP growth at five-decade highs, we have reported on this program how big oil majors such as Shell, Chevron, BP, ExxonMobil, and others are all raking in record profits. Not record revenue, mind you, as might be expected when the global price of oil and natural gas go up, but record profits. In other words, gas prices at the pump, the price you are forced to pay. Those prices are being raised by these companies more than the actual cost of the product to those big oil companies. Some, like me, might call that profiteering, even as some, like Republican opportunists, somehow blame Joe Biden for these extra costs being passed on to consumers at a time of pandemic recovery and war. But it's not just the oil industry, of course. Government watchdog Accountable.us, for example, has a new report out today finding that the top 10 U.S. apparel companies by market capitalization, including Nike, TJ Maxx, Ross, Burlington stores, Under Armour, all raised consumer prices while collectively reporting at least $12.9 billion in increased profits during their most recent fiscal years. These same companies also doled out $7.6 billion on shareholder handouts in their most recent fiscal years, with $3.9 billion more in planned handouts. Big Apparel are among the industries most unapologetic about charging their customers more during a fragile economic recovery, apparently just because they can, says Kyle Herrig, the president of Accountable U.S., 
He says when many in the industry boast of being in better shape than even before the pandemic, reporting billions of extra profits and new rewards for investors, it's obvious they didn't need to mark up sticker prices for their customers to the degree that they have. In other words, it ain't the supply chain. It's the greed. That new analysis followed another one by Accountable.us, a report digging into the two major food categories, groceries and uh, grocery stores and restaurants. The analysis found that the top five companies within those two uh, categories all raised prices while collectively making at least $8.6 billion in extra profits during their 2021 fiscal years. The same companies have also ramped up spending on stock buybacks and dividends by $11 billion year over year for a total of $37.6 billion. Of course, as we have discussed on this program over the past several years during the pandemic, it is not just the companies and their top shareholders who are profiting. It's actual, you know, people, actual billionaires who... As Americans died in untold numbers from the worst pandemic in a century, as a war now rages in Eastern Europe and inflation affects every consumer, but particularly those who can afford it the least, the rich have gotten considerably richer as many Americans have struggled for the past two and a half years just to feed their families and stay in their homes. We discussed the enormous gains in wealth for the nation's billionaires several times on this show over the course of the pandemic with folks like Chuck Collins of the Institute for Policy Studies and Mike Mechanic, author of the new book Jackpot, How the Super Rich Really Live and How Their Wealth Harms Us All. But more and more of late, these conversations and the ways in which the wealthy are hoovering up wealth from the poor and middle class is at least making its way into mainstream mainstream conversations. Here was The Daily Show's Trevor Noah last week after the stock market, the Dow Jones in this case on one day, skyrocketed nearly, uh, well, more than 900 points on what was seen as positive news on inflation from the Fed, but then fell the very next day for no obvious reason, more than 1,000 points for, yeah, reasons that are still not entirely clear. I'm by no means an economist, nor am I an expert on stock markets and all things finance related, but you have to admit, a lot of what happens on Wall Street seems like a scam. (laughs) Like, I, I really, like, today was one of the strangest things to read. It was yesterday, stock market goes up. Why does stock market go up? Because they say they were happy that Jerome Powell said they would n- the Fed would never increase the interest rate by more than half a percent. So they were like, yeah, and then it went up. And then today was crazy. The market was just like crashing in a way. It was like, you know, they're like, it's a bloodbath. And I was like, why? And they're like, oh, because they misinterpreted what he said. And then I was like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> First of all, how does that happen? How, is mar- how are markets changing because somebody didn't read something or understands, and all of you at the same time? And then secondly, why do markets do that? Does that make sense? Like, that's something where I was like, why do markets have the ability to do that? Why is it like jumping in fortunes, then going down? And then, like all of it, this is like a, like a scammy nature to the whole thing. And I think they've tricked everyone into going like, no, it's the economy, it's for you. It's for you, all of good economy, good for you. And you're like, is it though? 
for everyone? It's like, yes, good for you. And I get it for like, you know, people's retirements and I get it for 401ks and I understand those aspects of it. But I've realized there's so many things that are like designed in, in such a slick, scammy way. Like the Elon Musk Twitter thing is one of the best examples, right? People argue that you cannot tax billionaires on the shares that they hold in a company because it is an unrealized gain, right? So they go like, yeah, you, you're worth 300 billion, but we can't tax you on the, the, those stocks because you haven't sold the shares, so you don't like have the money, right? But you're worth the money, but you don't have the money. And so and I understand the argument. They go like, no, you don't have it. It's just what it's worth, because it could also crash, and then you have nothing, so we can't tax you on it. Then I'm like, okay, I understand that. So you can't tax the people on a thing because they, they don't have it. It's just there. Okay, fine. <laughs> then Elon Musk offers to buy Twitter, right? He offers to buy it. And then he says, in his offer, he goes, I'm putting up my Tesla stock as collateral. Then I'm like, so you, you do have it. <laughs> then he's like, no, 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 I don't have it. I don't have it, I'm just gonna say as collateral. So then they accept the offer, he now buys Twitter. Now that they've accepted his offer, he now goes to private equity and banks and like other rich people and whatever. He goes like, can you guys borrow me the money to buy Twitter? And then he's like, I'm, I wanna buy Twitter because I don't wanna sell any of my Tesla shares. So I wanna use your money to buy Twitter. And then it's like, but then they're like, what are we loaning it against? And he's like, well, my Tesla shares. <laughs> then I'm going like, wait, wait, so, so you, you, can, you can buy a thing based on what you have, yes. But when we wanna tax you, you can say, I don't have it. <laughs> do, do, do you hear what I'm saying here? And now, like, just, just, just think of like the illogic of it. It's like it's such a fun game that like billionaires get to play because all their money is in that, right? Like, like if you earn your money as a salary, that your money just gets taxed, that's it. You can't be like, like the IRS comes and you can't be like, I don't have that money. <laughs> you can't be like, that money's in the bank. I don't have that money. <laughs> what money? It's in the bank. Only when I take it out, then you can tax me. <laughs> For now, it's in the bank, IRS. No, IRS is like, don't worry. We've got your PIN number. We'll handle this, <laughs> right? But then, if you have billions in shares, you can then use that as money to then get more money, but not get taxed on any money because you don't have money. And now, I'm not saying that you should tax people based on an unrealized gain, because I understand for a market and an economy that might be crazy. But I am saying, it seems to me that you then shouldn't be able to use a thing that's unrealized as collateral. Yeah, it, it kind of does seem like you shouldn't be able to do that, doesn't it? And yet, here we are. As the U.S. crosses the grim milestone of one million deaths from COVID-19, the Institute for Policy Studies' Chuck Collins and Omar Ocampo reported last week U.S. billionaires have seen their combined wealth rise, never mind billions, but over $1.7 trillion a gain of over 58% since the pandemic began just over two years ago. This troubling juxtaposition, they write, underscores the story of unequal loss and sacrifice during the worst pandemic in a century, while billionaires have seen their wealth surge during the pandemic. Millions have lost their, li their lives and their livelihoods. On March 18, 2020, at the beginning of the formal lockdown, a fairly small group of U.S. billionaires held a combined $2.95 trillion. 
On May 4, 2022, as the U.S. crossed the 1 million death mark, according to several different analyses, 727 U.S. billionaires were worth $1.71 trillion more than when the pandemic began. That's not what they're worth now. That's how much more they are worth, worth than when all of these nightmares began. You struggled to survive. They made out like bandits off your misery and your losses. Between March of 2020 and May of 2022, for example, Jeff Bezos, owner of Amazon, saw his personal wealth rise $37 billion from $113 billion to $150 billion. Bill Gates' wealth increased $32 billion. Three members of the, Wal of the Walton family, Jim, Alice, and Rob, have seen their combined assets shoot up $44 billion. And, of course, Elon Musk, now the richest man in the world, who Trevor Noah mentioned there, uh, buying Twitter for $44 billion of largely other people's money, he had wealth that was valued just under $25 billion in March of 2020. He has seen his wealth increase some $230 billion personally to a total of $255 billion as of May 4, 2022. At one point during the pandemic, billionaire wealth gains had topped $2.1 trillion, Collins and Ocampo point out, according to an October 2021 report. But I guess with the markets faltering a bit over the past several months, poor dears, those 727 billionaires are only up $1.7 trillion today. That profit to those 727 Americans equals about 7% of the total U.S. gross domestic product or more than the entire annual GDP for entire nations like Canada, Australia, South Korea and Spain. So what's going on here? Why is this going on? What, if anything, can be done about it? And do policymakers in Washington of any party even care to do anything about it? Those are just some of the questions I hope to find some clarity on with my guest today. Omar Ocampo is a researcher in the program on inequality and the common good at the Institute for Policy Studies, a nonpartisan, nonprofit, progressive, multi-issue think tank for social justice movements, which has been uh, challenging inequality, corporate power, polluters and militarism since its founding in 1963. Omar Ocampo, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Hey, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Glad to have you here. Uh, so first, uh, Omar, I'm, I'm not a financial guy, so please feel free to speak to me about this stuff like I'm, I'm a five-year-old. Uh, but I have I have I mischaracterized anything in my in my uh, detailed intro there, trying to round up a lot of this stuff into one coherent-ish thread. No, I think uh, you uh, <clears throat> have have been able to capture the picture uh, absolutely clear. Um, you know, we've had one million deaths um, from COVID nineteen, and it's an unpleasant milestone that the United States has has achieved, and we continue to be the epicenter of that pandemic. And this is all occurring um, in the context where, um, you know, the billionaire class has increased their wealth by a staggering $1.7 trillion. And, mm. you know, we got asked, what about the rest of us? You know, the median income from, you know, comparing 2020 to 2021 for, uh, you know, your average, you know, U.S. Uh, worker has mm -hmm. actually decreased by $2,000. 
in our uh, you know median household wealth uh, from you know from comparing 2019 to 2021 uh, to uh, 2001 has actually decreased. So um, yeah, when you look at it by you know income or wealth percentile, it has been the the top 10 percent, but especially the top one percent who have seen impressive gains. So uh, let me start with uh, some of those questions. What is going on here and why before we get to what can or should be done about it and what is or isn't being done about it in uh, in Washington, D.C.? I understand. I guess I understand why, you know, Jeff Bezos's wealth and the Walton family's wealth, they're the owners of Walmart, why they went up during the pandemic as lockdowns and so forth drove Amazon and Walmart deliveries through the roof. That I get. But uh, Bill Gates and especially Elon Musk wealth growth, that is a bit harder to make sense of. So as as Trevor Noah was sort of asking, uh, what is going on here and and why, uh, you know, are, are folks like uh, Musk and others allowed to essentially radically increase their wealth, I guess, using other people's money? Yeah. Um, so the interesting thing, like you said, uh, you know, it's, Wealth has soared for some countries, and I mean, for some um, individuals and companies, and it makes intuitive sense because, um, you know, there was an increased demand and increases of sales for certain um, uh, products and services. Mm-hmm. But a lot of, uh, you know, the stock market, um, they were able to benefit from stimulus packages that were introduced to alleviate the initial economic impact of the pandemic. And there have been massive government inter- interventions throughout the world. The Federal Reserve began purchasing in like mid 2020 $120 billion worth of corporate bonds a month. Mm-hmm. And this effectively gave investors a floor and pushed the stock market up. Um, and, you know, referencing, uh, you know, Trevor Noah, um, when he talks about the, you know, the volatility of the stock market, mm-hmm. we first have to look at who participates in it and who invests in the stock market. You know, a little over half of U.S. Americans own stock, but the wealthiest top 10% own about 90% of all stock. Mm. And that demonstrates two things. That because, one, due to the concentration of ownership, uh, what is good for the stock market is not necessarily good for your average household mm-hmm. or individual because the benefits largely accrue to a small minority. Mm. And second is that the top 10% are essentially market makers and the rest are market takers. So... The stock market tends to be forward-looking, meaning it reflects the attitudes and perceptions of the rich on future economic performance, not actual or current sales or revenue. Mm-hmm. So the health and stability of the stock market is, is essentially dependent on the perception of you know, 10% of our population and who does not necessarily have any expertise, but just react to an event or a statement mm. from a government official or entrepreneur or celebrity. Mm. Let me pile on uh, another uh, political hot-button issue on top of all of this, Omar. I saw some uh, data today uh, in one of the Twitter discussions concerning the overturning of Roe v. Wade uh, that 6 million American children live in poverty right now. 2.5 million are homeless. And the U.S. is number 33 in infant mortality. Now, progressive activist Bob Seska noted that if Republicans were legitimately concerned about the lives of children, they would start by doing something about these serious issues. And he added that forced birth will significantly worsen all of these statistics, more child poverty, more infant mortality, more child homelessness. I know uh, I, I don't know if Institute for Policy Studies had, has yet looked at that question. 
but does that sound like a, a, a fair assessment based on what we know? Yeah, it does. So we haven't um, looked at that issue uh, in, in great detail, mm-hmm. but um, the Republicans, uh, you know, from an ideological perspective, they're not interested in having some type of government intervention in order to solve societal problems. They normally, um, you know, pivot towards philanthropy, but now is not the time for philanthropy, mainly because philanthropy does not scale, mm-hmm. and it also denies public accountability for, you know, social problems or something that has to deal with the public good. Mm-hmm. So issues that affect the public should involve public input, and it should be carried out about, uh, by uh, democratic uh, institutions. Philanthropy is, is, is really just a band-aid to a structural problem, mm-hmm. and you can't solve homelessness um, through a foundation. It has to be government policy, and this is why we need to put pressure on, on, on our uh, public officials in order to address these problems. And I want to talk about some of that pressure that uh, is needed but uh, in, a, in a moment. But, you know, we're, we're told that employment is now through the roof, that businesses cannot find enough workers, that wages are on the rise for the first time in decades, about five and five and a half percent, I believe, over the past year, even if that does not fully keep up with inflation right now. And with the exception of last quarter, GDP has been booming since Joe Biden took office. So for, you know, the American worker, Omar, all is well? Um, it is not, because as you <laughs> said, uh, the wage increases does not um, keep up with inflation, and it doesn't take into account all the increase in cost of living. Uh, you know, the price of uh, gasoline is, uh, I think, is, is hit uh, record highs. Mm-hmm. And if things were all so well... Um, you know, with you know the American, U.S. American worker, then um, we wouldn't be seeing uh, the masses essentially organizing. You know, they're 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 organizing in order to, you know, at giants like uh, Starbucks mm-hmm. and Amazon, mm-hmm. and they're doing this because they know that they're getting the short end of the stick. That the economic pie is growing, but they're getting a very small slice from the economic pie. So they're organizing in order to, you know, have you know, better working conditions, ensure mm-hmm. worker safety, um, you know, having, you know, their work being, you know, to be dignified and, uh, you know, in order to have more say um, in, the, in, in the everyday workings of the, of the company. So there's, a, there's, there's a, lot, a lot of ground that we need to make up and uh, we can do this when the masses organize because when we organize, we have power and the ability to put forth policies that, uh, um, you know, that transfers some of the more wealth and power towards the workers. Well, let's talk about some of those policies, uh, Omar Ocampo. What what should, what can be done and what should be done to, uh, you know, help even out the equation a little bit uh, before we get to the conversation about whether policymakers are actually taking action to do any of it? What would you like to see? What is What is the prescription for what ails us at this point? Yes, well, I, I would say that a, f- a short-term solution would be a wealth tax on, on, on the wealthy. You mm-hmm. know, uh, we actually did a study earlier this year um, that was released um, in collaboration with Oxfam, um, and uh, we estimated that if we levy a two percent tax on wealth over five million, three mm-hmm. percent on wealth over fifty million, and five percent over one billion, it would raise nine hundred and twenty-eight billion dollars. Um, just in the United States. Mm-hmm. So just think about what we could do 
with that revenue, um, you know, yearly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's something that could, you know, uh, you know, go towards health expenditures and making sure that our, you know, healthcare system is not uh, is is not overwhelmed. Um, you know, because the pandemic has definitely shown some of the vulnerabilities that we have in our in our, in our healthcare system. Um, you know, this could be used maybe to have partial student loan debt cancellation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we can reframe that as like a student loan stimulus if, if you know, people are not a fan of the, the word cancellation <laughs> right. or forgiveness. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, so I mean, we gave trillions in stimulus to the uh, to the wealthy, to, you know, during the pandemic. Nobody uh, screamed about how unfair that was for what about everyone else who didn't get money? Uh, and yet when it comes to, you know, taking away even some of the uh, student debt, which is through the roof, thanks also, by the way, to private equity, uh, you know, people say, oh, that's unfair. But it's really it's not or at least it's no more unfair than it was when uh, when the Fed uh, fired its its money cannon into the market uh, during the two and a half years of the pandemic. Exactly. And uh, as you know, uh, we mentioned before, it was a, the, the Fed was spending one hundred twenty billion dollars a month that, um, you know, beginning in mid um, mm-hmm. I think it was June 2020 and it ended in like December uh, 2021. Um, they're still pumping money into the market. It's mm-hmm. only like sixty billion now, but there's still a significant amount of money to you know to prop up, uh, you know, not just um, you know already profitable companies, but mm-hmm. also companies that you know that if you know if we were truly a free market, they they should be uh, out of business at at this point. But you know, no one says to a corporation, "How come you didn't save six months of you know expenses?" Um, but <laughs> that yet yeah, we expect that from households, yeah. but not. Uh, and how much of uh, what I see, uh, you know, I, personally as out and out profiteering at this point, pandemic profiteering, war profiteering, uh, you know, the oil companies, the clothes companies, the food companies, how much of that can actually be prevented by policymakers in D.C.? Didn't we used to have uh, weren't there laws against, you know, war profiteering in, in an economy where a handful of major companies or private equity firms now control monopolies or near monopolies where they can charge anything they want really for their products because they control so much of the market there's really no place else for consumers to go so there's no competition in the market to help keep prices down and these companies are taking advantage to just raise their prices um you know as uh, uh, accountable.us uh, the president there said just because they can is, is there anything that policymakers can do about that Yes, um, so it's not unprecedented. We used to have, uh, you know, commissions that are dedicated to tracking and looking at, uh, you know, uh, profiteering during times of uncertainty or crisis. Mm -hmm. So that's something that, you know, we could uh, advocate for, and um, we have done in in, um, past reports about, you know, let's have a specific COVID-19 commission Mm -hmm. that looks into whether or not... um, the, the prices that we see uh, in the market is a reflection of the fundamentals of supply and demand. And if they're not, you know, we should be able to have an excess, um, an excess profits tax. Mm-hmm. So we can have a tax on the windfalls that, that can then be redistributed in the economy in the form of a stimulus check or, mm. like, you know, um, or be the beginnings of some type of, you know, basic income to basically ensure the material security of every individual in the United States. So, um, yeah, that, that is, um, 
you know, one thing. And I'll also that I think that also that if we were to come up with a commission like that, you know, we should definitely look at, you know, have a committee of, you know, that assesses and rates our response to the COVID-19 pandemic and mm-hmm. identifies our shortcomings and makes recommendations on how to prepare for the future, including how to prepare uh, having you know, th- these committees that in order to uh, have uh, taxes on excess profits. Mm. Uh, boy, another good idea. Now, I realize the uh, the bulk of Congress and really much of D.C. Has, has pretty much been bought off these days by corporations and private equity at this point. But do either of the two ruling parties have actual plans for how to uh, even out this sort of obscene ratio between the, the rich and the middle class and the poor? Or, or are we just forced to sort of sit back? You know, and watch the rich get richer at this point while Americans struggle to pay rent or find a house that they can afford because, you know, yeah, private equity markets are also buying up all the housing stock right now, as I understand it, um, as they've already bought up just about, you know, everything else. Do do you see efforts in Congress, whether successful or otherwise, uh, that that actually can move us towards some of these solutions? Or are we just stuck in this muck and mire, Omar? That is a phenomenal question. Um, first, I would, uh, to answer the, the question directly, I would say that um, there are efforts, but it's coming from a very small minority. Mm. Um, so someone from, like, uh, like uh, you know, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, they mm-hmm. have put forth proposals, including a wealth tax. Uh-huh. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think uh, Bernie one time came out for, like, a 50% tax on the wealth gains from, you know, within a certain period on the billionaire class. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is that it's not, it's probably not realistic and it's not going to happen. Uh, and, and it's partly because of, um, you know, that both parties represent, uh, you know, different uh, factions of capital. Mm-hmm. And um, they're, you know, captured by the elites and oligarchs because economic inequality translates into political inequality. And then the greater your material resources the greater access you have to participate in the state. And I think this is very detrimental to democracy because it makes, you know, the democratic institutions unresponsive to what the majority wants. The majority wants increased taxes on, on, the, on the wealthy, but mm-hmm. it's, it never seems to happen. And it's partly because of the influence they have on, um, you know, on, on, on both, political, uh, both political parties. Well, I want to be somewhat fair here in that the uh, Democrats did try to uh, raise taxes on the wealthy. They were pretty much stopped by, I think in that case, one senator, Kirsten Sinema, uh, mm-hmm. but w- with with the helping hand from Joe Manchin to you know kill the entire thing in the Build Back Better program. But you know, so clearly they they want to do that. They realize that needs to be done. But our democratic system. Uh, again, in quotes, our democratic system uh, is so hobbled right now that, you know, you can't pass anything in the U.S. Senate without 60 votes. And yet, you know, which which leads me sort of my final question here, Omar, all of this is so grim and so frustrating sometimes. I'm hoping there's maybe some sort of positive note we can end on here. We talk on this show all the time about the importance of elections, that they really do make a difference and really are, as I see it, our only way out of this mess. Am I on target? And do you believe that uh, given, you know, for example, more senators, more Democratic senators in this case, so they can actually pass something, 
do you believe that, you know, Democrats understand the problem, that they actually want to do something about it if they have the power in the Senate to do it? Or as many cynics will say these days, oh, they're all just they're all the same. The Democrats are as bad and as bought off as the Republicans. Yeah, so I do think elections matter, and I do think that, uh, you know, to alleviate, especially in the short term, it'd be best to um, elect uh, Democrats, because there are a section of the Democratic Party, uh, specifically those who self-identify as progressives, Mm -hmm. who care about uh, wealth inequality and know that it has distorting effects, you know, across um, our whole society. But I would also say that it is important that there's an importance of uh, organization. When the masses organize, you know, we have uh, a power, and we can advocate for something that prevents wealth concentration from happening even in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, we can have, you know, profit sharing, more democracy at work, uh, you know, work with cooperatives, increase union membership. You know, I think that we all benefit from the deepening of democracy. And then, you know, and also vote for candidates that do not take corporate money. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is one of the appeals of, uh, you know, uh, initially of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And um, and then there was this group called Justice Democrats who they mm-hmm. were just like, you know, we're going to run for all these, you know, uh, on a local and state and national level. And, you know, we're not going to be you know, captured by corporations and corporate money who then, you know, have undue influence over us. So I would say, yes, elect more Democrats, but it's also important to organize And when we have organization, you're able to uh, apply pressure and come up with solutions. Omar Campo is a researcher in the program on inequality and the common good at the Institute for Policy Studies. Uh, You can find all of their critical work at inequality.org. You can follow them also on the Twitters at inequality.org. O-R-G. Omar Ocampo, really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for all the work that you're doing, and we'll uh, look forward to talking to you again soon in the future as soon as we fix all of these problems. Yes, thank you, and, <laughs> and, I, and I appreciate the, all the work that you're doing, and I'd be happy to come back. Thank okay, you, speaking of all of these problems, Desi <laughs> Doyen, uh, some breaking news while I was talking to Omar there. Oh, uh, two different stories. Uh, well, I won't characterize them. We'll just take a break, come back, and tell you what they are. I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to The Bradcast. You're listening to The Bradcast. We are 100% listener-supported, thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. As I promised, two breaking stories uh, just in over the past uh, few minutes here in the least surprising news of the week, I suspect. Every single Republican and Democratic Senator Joe Manchin blocked a Democratic-led bill on Wednesday in the U.S. Senate that would enshrine broad protections for legal abortion nationwide. A vote triggered by the leaked Supreme Court draft opinion that indicates the 50 years of freedom for women's reproductive rights established by Roe v. Wade will likely all be overturned in just the next few weeks by the activist Republican justices on the Supreme Court's stolen and packed majority. The Women's Health Protection Act, which has passed the House, won 49 votes in the Senate, all Democratic. Yes, even Republicans Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, who pretend to support the right to choose, 
voted against it. And that means, of course, it fell far, far short of the 60 senators who are needed to break a filibuster in our undemocratic U.S. Senate. Not surprising, though still disturbing. This, however, even more disturbing, I think, a U.S. appeals court on Wednesday decided that California's ban on the sale of semi-automatic weapons to adults under 21 is unconstitutional. In a two-to-one ruling, a panel on the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals said Wednesday the law violates the Second Amendment right to bear arms and a San Diego judge should have blocked what it called, quote, an almost total ban on semi-automatic Center fire rifles for young adults. Mm. Quote, America would not exist without the heroism of the young adults who fought and died in our revolutionary army, Judge Ryan Nelson wrote. Of course, they didn't have semi-automatic rifles, uh, Your Honor. He said, today we reaffirm that our Constitution still protects the right that enable their sacrifice, the right of young adults to keep and bear arms. Now, I, you know, not a constitutional expert, but I don't think I see anything in the Constitution about young adults having this right. Does that mean that four-year-olds may buy semi-automatic weapons? Apparently so. Uh, according to uh, what I understand this ruling to be today, it's just unbelievable. Yeah, it's like you said, not surprising, very disturbing. The Firearms Policy Coalition, which brought the case, says the ruling makes them optimistic other age-based gun bans will also be overturned. Oh, goody. Let's let all the children have semi-automatic weapons, because freedom, unless you're a woman who wants an abortion. Then... No rights for you. There you go. You said it nicer than I might have. All right, got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Omar Ocampo of inequality.org, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it for free anytime at bradblog.com, all of which is made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. You can drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. That's it. Until we meet again, I'll see you there. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.